That is the topic today. That is the topic. Um, let me kind of, before I, I just jump right in, kind of set the stage a little bit. Uh, in, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is just saying, well done. Like, you're doing a great job. I, I want to point this out. In the first three chapters, there has been no correction and no rebuke to anything about this, this church so far. There's no, like, hey, you're getting this off, you're getting this wrong, repent. He does that a lot, initially, with many churches in the New Testament, not with this church. He basically just keeps saying, well done, keep going, you're doing well. We're going to read this verse, but let me just throw it up here really quick. He says, I want you to please God, please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. He's like, I want you to keep on pleasing God, just as you're doing, and just keep doing it more and more. That is more of the tone of 1 Thessalonians. He's like, you're doing a good job. You're living a life that is pleasing God. Just keep going more and more. That, that's more of the tone of this book. It's probably less correction and just more saying, well done. But here actually in chapter 4, Paul's now going to kind of give him some like preventative warnings. It's almost like a good coach. He's like saying, hey, the best, off, you know, the best defense is a good offense kind of a thing. He's saying, like, keep on going. Uh, you're doing well. Keep on living well. So there's no correction so far. Even in this section, he's basically saying, I just want to warn you because I know where you live. You live in Thessalonica. You live in a very perverted, sexually promiscuous city and area. And so I want to encourage you to abstain, to walk worthy, to please God, to live and pursue holiness. This is more of what we're going to be reading in verse 1 through 8. And so it just brings up the question, because this is really the topic today. It's, it's more Paul is kind of revealing to us the Christian sex ethic. Now, this is one of those things that I think can, obviously, it does something to us when we hear this, when we talk about this. This kind of ruffles some feathers a bit. I want to be clear that Paul is talking to believers in Jesus, followers of the way of Jesus, and he says, obviously, the way you do marriage and the way you do relationships is going to be different the, rest, the way the rest of the world does marriage and relationships and sexuality and purity. It's just going to be very different. The way that God has called us to live is going to look different than the world. And so, again, this brings up some questions. What does the Bible say just about sexuality? Uh, is there anything that's off limits? Uh, how does God define marriage? How does God define gender? How does God define these things? You know, obviously, we live in, in a world where there's a lot of different kind of sexual expressions or different ways people identify themselves when it comes to their sexuality and their gender. And so I want to make sure as we talk about this today, that we're not just kind of like stomping all over people. We know there's people who maybe just even from just a young age, they have same-sex attraction. They maybe just struggle with different thoughts on, on purity. We want to say like, we love you. We want to walk through this text with you. We want to be gentle and loving, but also kind of call you to the way of Jesus and say the way of Jesus does look different than what our world affirms, what our world looks at. We want to say the way of Jesus is just different. It's a way of love, absolutely, but it's also a way where God calls us to a different sort of lifestyle. And so as we talk about just the, the idea of this Christian sex ethic, here's the idea. Um, the whole point of the section is God just saying holiness. I want you to be holy. I want you to be set apart. I, I've, I've called you out for a purpose and a reason. I've consecrated you. I've set you aside for something. And so really there's just ultimately this call for, for holiness. You know, as, as we talk about sexuality, as we talk about sex, I think we, we know this. God created sex and sexuality, and this is a beautiful gift. When done well, sex is, is one of the most glorious and beautiful things on this planet. But when it's done outside of God's will and design, this can be one of the most destructive things on the planet. Many people have been hurt by the upbringing maybe they've had, by family members. Maybe things have been done to you or others you love. Maybe you've experienced some pain when it comes to this topic. Maybe you've even experienced some church hurt where the church was not very loving, where the church was not welcoming, where the church is quick to condemn. And here's the thing. We want to say, Jesus, how, how do you respond to someone when it comes to maybe different sexual bents or backgrounds? How does the gospel respond? You know, how do we show love and stand for truth? And what is, what is the truth around this Christian sex ethic? So we just want to dive into this text. I want to read it all the way through. And then I just want to pray. And I just want to invite the Lord just to lead and guide our time. Because this is one of those things where I think when, we, when done well, this actually can be a great example to the world of, of what it looks like to follow Jesus, how God does bless marriage, how God blesses sex. And this is one of those things we just want to honor the Lord with. So why don't we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 through 8. We'll read this and dive right in. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus 
that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this, verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives us his Holy Spirit to you. Why don't we just pray and just invite the Lord. Father, we just, um, we want to thank you so much that you, you love us enough to invite us into a way of life. God, to invite us into a way of life that we know brings more life. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that you've given us. God, I just want to pray in my own life, in our lives, God, that um, this tendency we have maybe to want to do life our own way, this desire in our heart of hearts to not want to have to submit to your way, God, because we think we know best. I just ask Jesus that you loosen our grip. I ask God that we just be able to surrender today, that Jesus, you would truly be Lord in every area of our life. God, I want to pray for those just in every area of life that uh, this is not just for one person or one type of person, God, but you want to see holiness in all of us. God, I just do pray for that in my life, in our people's life here, in the church body's life, that there would be holiness, that we'd be set apart, that we'd no longer believe and do and act the way the world does, but Jesus, we, there would be a difference. We just want to thank you. We need you. We ask that you lead this time in your name. Amen. You know, on Monday, I was at Starbucks sitting down, working on a couple of things. We had a board meeting this week, so I was preparing some stuff, and uh, one of the workers comes to me, and he's, he's on duty. He's on a shift. He has his apron on, and he comes to me and says, Josiah, you're one of those church people, aren't you? I'm like, yeah, I'm one of those church people. He's like, you work at church? I'm like, yeah. He's like, look what someone just gave me. Someone gave him this little booklet. It's like a little Christian tract. Maybe you remember these, like, Christian tract things, kind of popular in the 80s and 90s, but it's a pretty, you know, thick little Christian tract. And he's like, I think they gave this to me because I'm gay. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, look inside. And he opens up the track and shows me, and there's a picture of, uh, of a gay man on a hospital bed dying of AIDS. And he says, look, they gave me this because they said, I'm, gonna, I'm probably, this will be my life if I don't repent. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, man, I'm sorry, man. And he just starts opening up and starts talking. And, you know, he's like, no, no, I, I grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia, you know, right next to a big Christian university. And one of my neighbors was a professor there. And, uh, you know, he was never friendly to us. He never talked to us. And then we just found out later that he was cheating on his wife. And we just know Christians are like this. And I'm like, man, I'm so sorry to hear about your experiences. And we just started talking a little bit. And I honestly saw the track, and I actually went on and Googled it and read through it. And it's, it's sad to think, like, here's this picture of a man. That's a cartoon picture of a, of a homosexual man dying from AIDS on a hospital bed. And they're like, hey, this is for you. Church, we have to do better. We have to do better than that. Obviously, we want to engage in dialogue when it comes to Christianity. Of course we do. But, you know, what do we want people to do? We want people to know Jesus and experience Jesus. Can I tell you, I think first and foremost, we want people to repent of not believing in Jesus. We want people to experience Jesus as Savior and as Lord. And sometimes we, the church, and I, I can be guilty of this, I want to see Jesus do something in a day that might take the Holy Spirit a lifetime to do in our lives. And I really want you to hear me on this. Of course, we want people to experience Jesus as Lord and submit and surrender every area of their life over to him. But again, sometimes we, we, we forget in our own lives when it comes to sanctification that God is working on us on a daily basis. And sometimes it might take a lifetime for God to be working on something in our lives, but we want people to just stop and respond in a moment. And here's what I'm getting at. Jesus said in John 16, verse 8, and just hear me out on this, John 16, 8, Jesus said, when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, why? Because they do not believe in me. What is the Holy Spirit right now convicting the world of? Sin. What is the sin? They don't believe in Jesus. I think this is so important. There's obviously millions of sins that the Holy Spirit can convict the world of, and he does. I think the Spirit is that, does that in our, our, our life as followers of Jesus, as Christians. There's constantly conviction of sin. But notice with the world, what does he convict them of? They don't believe in Jesus. This is profound to me. I think sometimes we try to go to maybe step two or three before step one. 
We want people to know that Jesus is who he claimed to be. We want people to know that Jesus did die on a cross for the sins and rise again three days later and walked around this earth for 40 days and ascended into heaven. We want people to believe in Jesus as Savior and as Lord. And we want him to know him this way. The Holy Spirit's working in them, convicting them of sin. Of the sin, what is the sin he's convicted of? They don't believe in Jesus. There's this work that the Spirit's doing. You know you need Jesus. You know Jesus is who he claimed to be. You know that he died for you. You know that he loves you. The Holy Spirit's working that way. Do you guys follow me so far? And what I'm trying to get at is I think sometimes we, we maybe try to go really quickly when we go, hey, let's just talk about Jesus and have a conversation with Jesus. Because once you come to believe like, oh my goodness, this man is Savior of the world. Oh my goodness, he's Lord. What he says goes. And we're still experiencing the lordship of Jesus in our lives, are we not? We're exper- still experiencing those moments where God is convicting me and convicting you of different sins. And it might not happen all at once. And so we got to do better than just throwing a booklet at someone and say, this could be your future. we got to do better than that. But we obviously got to engage well. You know, how, how do we at the same time not shy from truth, but how do we love well? How do we do this? Like, what does this look like? Let me just start off by saying this. If you struggle with Christians' view of marriage and of sex, I want to throw out something to you that C.S. Lewis said. And Luis, this might be a few slides down, but let me just read it here. Uh, C.S. Lewis kind of says it this way. He says, does this biblical teaching on sexuality bother you? Well, then punt it for a while. Because the center of Christianity is not sexual ethics, the cross and lordship of Jesus are. You guys with me? Maybe you need to punt it for a while. Maybe you're in a place in life where it's like, see, this is why I don't believe in Jesus and I I can't stand the Christian message. Listen, listen, before we even get into the Christian sex ethic, maybe you just need to spend some time on the question, is Jesus who he claimed to be? Is Jesus Lord? Did Jesus die and rise again? Maybe that's where you need to live. I just want to say, let's start there. We'll get into the Christian sex ethic, absolutely. But maybe before you get that, you just need to know, is Jesus who he claimed to be? Because if Jesus is who he claimed to be, then everything about my life is about to be dramatically different. Amen? It's just going to happen. Not to one certain type of people, to everyone. Everyone. Nothing's off limits when it comes to the Christian sex ethic. Heterosexuals are not off limits when it comes to the Christian sex ethic. My point is that Jesus calls all of us to repentance in some fashion and form in our worldview and in our practice in this way. Yes? So let's talk through this. Because let's just be honest, we live in a world that's just saturated with sex and sexuality. Like, it's everywhere. We can't drive down the 95 with like seeing like a gentleman's club and you're like, I don't think that's a gentleman's club. Like, we can't, it's just everywhere we go. Like, I'm driving behind a taxi and I'm like, I gotta call my wife. Hey, wife, I love you. Hi. Because it's, it's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. Like, you'll be on the computer, wanna have fun? You're like, no, I don't wanna have fun. I'm okay. Like, it's just, it's crazy. It's just crazy how it truly is everywhere. Even for the baptism this week, we got like a, a you know, someone filled out the form with like a link, obviously didn't click on it, a link of some pornographic website. My point is, this is everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. And, and sometimes I think the world can kind of have this idea of like, well, what's the big deal? I mean, sex is sex. This doesn't hurt anyone. I mean, what's the big deal that it's everywhere? I mean, what's the big deal? People want to do what they want to do. It doesn't hurt anyone. And I think, obviously, that's why we've seen just what we've seen. I think we've seen just more marriages fall apart. I think we've seen more people addicted to pornography. I think we've just seen people get involved in things they never, they'd imagine, people I know and love, who've gotten involved in things they thought they'd never get involved in, like child pornography. They never thought it would lead this far. Because we become numb and desensitized, and it grows and grows and grows. You go, it's not hurting anybody. Just a couple of little things. Human trafficking generates about $150 billion a year globally. Approximately 300,000 children are at risk of being uh, prostituted in the United States. My, my point is, like, it doesn't hurt anybody. Of course it does. My thing is, like, I think we become numb and numb. It grows, it grows, it grows. And it doesn't just have to be these extremes. It can obviously be the small things that the Holy Spirit is at work in us. It can be in our thoughts. It can be in how we perceive, how we look at others. I, I just think there's constantly this, this realization that this is not just for someone else. This is for us. And, and the reason why I want to bring this is God's spirit to the Thessalonians is like, you're doing great. But I just want to warn you. I know where you live. I know you're in Thessalonica. I know you're in a city that just values sexuality. That essentially they, they worship it. They have goddesses to it. I know that there's easy access to these things for you. And I just want to, I'm begging you to abstain, abstain from sexual morality. I'm begging you to pursue holiness. 
So, so what does this look like? How do, how do we talk about this? How do we dive into this? You know, sometimes I think the church can be guilty because we might call out a sin, and we're like, well, why is that a sin? Like, because the Bible says so. And listen, obviously, we are governed by this book. We love this book. We believe in this book. We believe this is God's word, but the, the world doesn't. And obviously, we, again, going back to that first quote, we want them to know that Jesus is Lord. We want them to believe that, experience that. We hope that under the lordship of Jesus, they begin to study the word and go, oh my gosh, this is not a rule book to bind me, but this is to set me free. That God's way is better than my way. That when I actually do his word, it brings me more life, not less life. But that takes time sometimes to get there as we study that and as we get into that. You know, and I, I, I do want to just kind of humbly submit, because when I'm in conversation with people, I will try to do my best, not always, and I won't tackle all of these questions, but I'll try to do my best to kind of ask questions, because sometimes that can help kind of maybe loosen the grip a little bit. And I want to do it sometimes, sometimes outside of like the biblical framework, because God has also given us, I think, just a mind and intelligence. And I think philosophically speaking, we can try to ask some questions that are just helpful. And so before we say, well, what does the Bible say about it? Here's just some questions I think that can be helpful in our, our daily life as we just talk to people. Here's like the first question. I'll try to maybe ask or kind of get to, or you can word it differently. One question is um, this. If there's a God, is God allowed to tell you to deny yourself? Here's what, just stay with me. I feel like self-denial is the new immorality. Like, meaning you cannot tell anyone to deny themselves. Like, no, that's wrong. It is wrong to tell people to deny themselves. My thing is, if there's a God, is God allowed to tell us, hey, deny yourself? I really think this is an important question. Can God ask you and I to deny certain desires of our heart? Is God, does God have that area in our life? Is God allowed to say, hey, 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 I know you want that. I know you like that. Deny yourself. Nope, God can't do that. It's almost unthinkable. It's almost unthinkable that God could ask us to deny ourselves. And I think this is very important to bring up. If there's God, is, is he allowed to tell us to deny ourselves? I mean, this is the heart of the gospel. Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Let him deny himself. Are we, is God allowed to deny, to ask us, to tell us, to deny ourselves? Absolutely. And again, this isn't towards one person. This is towards all of us, myself included. There's constantly this idea of deny yourself. I know you want that. Deny yourself. God, is all, God is, has access to every area, and this is so important. This is a question I just like to ask. Maybe somehow you find it, you word it your own way. Here's another, another question. I've used this before, but I want you to stay with me. I think a question that we have to ask is just simply this. Hey, where do we draw the line? How do we draw the line? Who draws the line? Is anything too far? Like, is anything off limits? It's like, well, yeah, child pornography, pedophilia, bestiality, or some people might call it zoosexuality. Those things are just too far, but why? What happens when those things are not too far? Well, those things are against the law. Well, what happens when it's not against the law? What happens that we say, you know what, uh, when it comes to pedophilia, maybe we'll lower the age a little bit to 17 to 16 to 15 to 14 to 13. How do we determine what is morally right or wrong? Does, is it based off culture? Is it based off government? Does government control morality and ethics? Is that based off culture? We have to just ask these questions of who, where do we draw the line? Like who draws the line? Who is that? Is there objective morality? And obviously that, this kind of brings into just deeper questions. And I'll get into that. Talk through that, but we have to ask that in some capacity. For example, I have a pastor friend who, he has some family in India, and he goes there every so often on mission trip, and one of the things, I think I maybe shared this before, but he's come back and says, listen, it's, it's painful to watch. There's certain regions and parts in India that are, are less governed, but uh, in, their, in their different kind of temples to their Hindu gods, temple prostitution is a very legal and common thing there. But not is it just temple prostitution, it's temple prostitution for minors. Because I've seen girls as young as 12 to 10 years old being temple prostitutes in this area, and it's acceptable in their culture. No one's shaming them, no one's putting it down, it's actually allowed, because that's a, that's a way of they, they worship their gods. Is there objective evil? Can we say that's wrong? Why do we all hear that and go, that's wrong, that is wrong? Because we know that there is good and there is evil, and then if there's good and there's evil, there's some sort of moral law. If there's some sort of moral law, there's some sort of moral law giver. Who is that? Is it us? No, we fail at that all the time. And my, my point is we have to stand back and say, who draws the line? Where do we draw the line? How do we draw the line? You know, because again, we can just go into this all day long. What happens, you know, again, it might be, uh, seem silly or far off. There is a group, it's, you know, the NAMBLA, the North American Man-Boy Love Association, but they use the same exact arguments as maybe the, the transgender community, the homosexual community of just, listen, we are born this way, we can't choose who we love, and so we love minors. We love people this age, pre-pubescent boys or girls, and we can't choose it. This is how we're wired and designed. And we go, no, no, we know that's wrong. Well, what happens when we don't view that as wrong anymore? What happens when the law says, you know what, the kid is consenting. I mean, if you can choose 
choose at eight years old to choose your gender, why can't you choose who you love at eight years old? Okay, so therefore, I mean, you can, my point is you can see how easily we would get there. You can see how easily we go, you know what, yeah, you're choosing your gender at five, six, seven years old. Why can't you choose who you love at five, six, seven years old? Maybe we should let them into this group. My thing is where do we draw the line? How do we draw the line? Who draws the line? Everyone draws the line somewhere. How do you do it? And so these are just questions we throw out there. How do we draw the line? Where do we draw the line? Number three is this. Even if sexuality is a predisposition, does it make it okay to act on it? So what I want to get at is, listen, someone's like, I was born this way. We know this. Like Lady Gaga's famous thing. I was born this way, right? Um, you know the Macklemore song? I think I've quoted this before, but Macklemore says, the right-wing conservatives thinks it's a decision, and you can be cured with some treatment and religion. Man-made rewiring of a predisposition, playing God. Ah, uh, no, nah, here we go. And then the chorus, I can't change even if I tried, even if I wanted to. This is kind of the chant of today. I can't change. It's a predisposition. Even if I tried, even if I wanted to. My question is, even if sexuality is a predisposition, does it make it morally okay to act upon it? Because obviously it raises the question of what other predispositions can you have? What other ways can you, what other, what other ways can you be born with a certain desire in your heart? Hey, I can't, I can't change. You know, let's just talk about this in a common sense way, where I think that there's many husbands in the room. We love our wives. We're committed to our wives. Okay, could you imagine trying to use this argument with your wife? Hey, honey, I was born attracted to other women. And I need to act on it. I just can't change who I am. You're going to end up dead. Right? Like, that's not going to fly. It's like, no, no, no. Deny that. Even if your, your predisposition is to be attracted to hundreds of women, doesn't mean you give in to that. Doesn't mean you morally act upon it. Doesn't mean you entertain those thoughts. There's still a life self-denial all the time. The, the thing is, just because we might have that proclivity or predisposition doesn't mean it's okay to act on it. I try to write it this way. Just because something comes naturally doesn't mean it's morally okay to act upon it. Things will come naturally all the time doesn't mean it's more okay to act upon it. Here's my fourth question I just want to throw out there. Um, again, if there's a God, and I've asked this before, but if there's a God, should God always agree with my beliefs? If there's a God, should God always agree with what's popular in culture? And whose culture? Our culture? Eastern culture? Like, we just have to ask this, like, why does everyone assume God agrees with them? I always wonder that. Like, there's no way God would ever call something a sin. Like, why not? He's God. Like, I don't get why God has to agree with me. It's scary to think if God were to always agree with me and what I wanted. God calls me to repentance just as much as he calls anyone else to repentance. You better believe that. But like the point being that even if, so if we do believe there's a God, does God have any right to say, hey, no, 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 I do have a standard or way of living. Is God going to disagree with you at any point in time? Of course he is. Is God going to disagree with us popular culture? Of course he is. You know, I'm very thankful God has disagreed with what has been popular in culture throughout the centuries. I'm very thankful you think about this. some of the things humans have done on earth, and it was commonplace, it was common thought. I'm very thankful God says, no, no, there is good and there is evil, and that is evil. My point is, God, as sooner or later, is going to disagree with us, and sooner or later, he's going to disagree with what's popular in culture. Now, these are just some questions, I think, just to get the conversation going. I'm not trying to use a Bible verse yet. I'm just trying to say, this is something we can do. But again, ultimately, can I, can I just encourage you? Sometimes we can get sidetracked on maybe a certain specific topic. When I, I feel like my job sometimes is like, let's bring it back to the person of Jesus. Who is Jesus? What did he do? What did he claim? Did he die innocently? Did he claim that he would die for the world? Did he die for the world? Did he rise again? Is there evidence around the resurrection? I feel like for me, I feel like part of my job when I talk to people is like, let's just get back to the resurrection of Jesus. I want you to kind of know my game plan. Did Jesus rise again? Because I don't even care about, like, these conversations are all secondary. Doesn't, if Jesus did not rise, then you're right, let's just surrender all of this. But if Jesus is risen, and he's Savior, and he's Lord, now I need to reconsider a few things. Just kind of want to throw that out to you guys. So, as we talk about this today, these are just some questions, kind of ways to get the conversation going. Here's how we're going to walk through verse 1 through 8 together. You guys ready? Is that everyone okay? All right. Uh, you're like, oh, can we go now? No, we're just starting. Um, here's the first point. For just walk in holiness. Why? Walk in holiness. Why? Number one, we're going to see to please God. Number two, to obey God. Number three, to escape the judgment of God. Is essentially what Paul says in verse six through eight. Walk in holiness. Why? Can we read verse one and two? Number one is this, to please God. Actually, let's start here. What a beautiful mindset. We walk in holiness. Why? Because you have to. No. To please God. Let's read verse one. Verse one. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. He says, we want you to please God, just as you're doing, but more and more. We want you to walk worthy. We want you to please God. 
I think this is foundational to this conversation of holiness. Why do we seek to be holy? Why do we want to be holy or set apart? Because number one is this, to please God. This is so different maybe than how you and I maybe grew up with, or if you grew up in the Christian faith in some ways. I think there's a couple different approaches to the topic of purity. So when you think of the topic of purity or holiness, a lot of times it can be legalism-based or it can be like lawlessness-based. Here's what I mean. Sometimes when it comes to purity, it's like legalism. You got to be purity. You got to be whole. You got to be set apart. Why? You just got to be. Like, why? You, you need to be that. It's what God wants, okay? Like, we get it, like, there's almost like this form of legalism that can kind of take place. Well, I got to do these things because I ought to. Maybe there's lawlessness base. Hey, God doesn't really care. Just do what you want. Just uh, do whatever you want. Love God, but do whatever you want. There can also be a legalism or, or lawless kind of thing happening in our heart. But here's what I love. Paul's just saying, like, love. Please, God. See, the, the reason why do we want to be pure or holy or set apart? It's, God, I love you. I want to please you. I really think there is that, that third option of like, it's not based, we don't try to live holy because we want to be legalistic. We don't, we don't try to also live a lawless life, like do whatever you want. The idea is like, God, I just want to please you. God, what's your, what's your heart here? What do you want, God? There's something that's so different about wanting to please someone. You say, I just want to please you. Like, I, I just want to, what makes you happy? What, what brings joy to our relationship? Oh, this, living holy, I want to please you, God. Actually, it says in John 8, 29, Jesus says, I always do these things that please the Father. John H. I always do the things that are beautiful. I, don't, I can't claim that. That's Jesus. But that's the pursuit, right? It's the pursuit. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, he says, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. He goes, our goal here is to be well-pleasing to God. So just stay with me for one second. When it comes to the idea of purity or holiness, maybe purity is like a trigger word because you grew up in the 90s like me, and you're like, oh, purity movement, I don't know. But maybe that's like a weird thing to you. Can I say that the desire to, to live a life set apart, to please God, I think for so long, pure, like holiness was here are the things you need to avoid when it's probably less about not just what you avoid, but what you pursue. So please stay with me. Obviously, when it comes to holiness, there are certain things you need to avoid in life. Like to be set apart, there's certain things you're going to have to avoid. Certain things you don't go to, you don't look at, you don't watch, you're not part, you, I get it, there's the things I avoid. But I think that is very half-baked it wasn't like complete. I used to think holiness was, was what I didn't do. But here's what it's also what you pursue. What do you pursue? Not just what you avoid, but what do you pursue? You see, we're pursue, our pursuit is to please God. You see these phrases of honor, holy. This idea of sanctification is the same Greek word for the word holy. Sanctification and holy is like the same idea. Holy, set apart, honor. You see, there's a side where, yes, you abstain, as Paul says, but you're pursuing the idea of pleasing God, God, does this please you? So church, here's the, here's the first point I want to, as we kind of set off this tone of this topic, um, God's will for us is holiness, but why, why the heart of it has to be to please God? God, I just want to please you. The heart of it is I want to feel really self-righteous that I'm not doing these things, and you are, you're bad, I'm good. No. Mm-mm. Well, I haven't done all these sexual things, they have. So therefore, I might be in a different category than them. No. See, the pursuit is not self-righteousness. The pursuit is not shame. The pursuit is, God, I just want to please you. It's different. It's different. It's not, you can't claim or boast in anything. You're just like, God, I just want to enjoy you. I want to pursue you. I'm going to spend more time in point number two and three, but I just kind of want that to set the tone. So here's point number two. Paul's saying, walk in holiness. Why? He's basically saying, obey God. Obey God. Can we read verse uh, three? Here's what Paul says in verse three. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual morality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. All right, he's like, pursue holiness, why? Well, to obey God simply. Verse three, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, Paul does this later in chapter five, and I'll I'll get into this because I think this is really interesting. Paul has some of these phrases, this is the will of God. I think the number one question I get asked, just Probably, I don't know why it's maybe more now, but it's like the idea is like, hey, what's God's will for my life? How can I know God's will for my life? I would say like, hey, when you see a verse like this, probably write it down, right? Like, probably circle it. You're like, I don't know, decide what's God's will for my life. I'm like, uh, just your sanctification. Uh, I don't like that answer. Like, what's his will for my life? I'm like, that says right here, God's will, sanctification. Like, there's a lot of verses like this in the Bible. And you, it might not be what you're looking for. You usually mean like, who am I supposed to marry? Where am I supposed to move to? What am I going to do for a living? God's like, uh, sanctification. So here's, here's what I want to get at. 
I think this is so important. God's like, hey, this is my, the will of God is your sanctification. This word again just means holiness, being set apart. Hey, want to know my will for your life? Just be sanctified, be set apart. I've called you out of, the, out of darkness into my marvelous light. I've sanctified you. I've set you apart for something greater. See, this is God's will for your life and my life. Can I tell you, it's 2 Peter 3, 9. It says, God's will is that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. Do we know that God's will is he wants no one to perish? Do you know that God loves people so I don't want anyone to perish? I want everyone to come to repentance. But not just come to repentance. God's will is that we be sanctified. Salvation includes this idea of repentance, like being justified by the grace of God, but also now being sanctified by the grace of God, being set apart by the grace of God. This is God's will. He says, your sanctification. This is what I, w- I want you to be set apart. I have more for you in life than for you just to give in to your natural desire. I have more for you than you want it, just take it. You want it, eat it. You want her, have her. You want him, have him. You want that, go ahead. No, no, I have something more for you. Your sanctification. This is God's will, he says, for your life. Now, again, in this kind of process, I think we've blended maybe at times, the, the world's view on sex and sexuality and the Christian world's view on sex and sexuality. Like, let's be honest. We have to realize this. All of us live by a certain script, by a certain maybe narrative in which we tell ourselves about life or romance or sex or death. There's certain scripts we all live by. You know, obviously, every movie has some sort of, like, narrative. It's funny. It makes me laugh because, like, even in kids' movies, the conclusion of, like, a kid's movie is basically follow your heart. And all the kids are like, yes. And I'm like, no. You know, it's funny. Like, there's always some sort of, like, script the world throws out there. And everyone's like, this is beautiful. And I'm like, this is a terrible. I don't know. My, my thing is there's certain scripts in which we live by. And maybe I don't even know it. Like, we, as, we can see things really quickly as, as we're scrolling on social media. We see a question. We see a video. We think this is romance. We think this is relationship. This is what it looks like. This is what sex or sexuality should be, and we're constantly having these micro-formation moments where these things are forming us all the time. Like myself, it happens to all of us. We drive by something, we're asked a question, all of these things are forming our thought process, our mind, our view, and so sometimes the Christian view, and, and just you could say the cultural view, the script gets blended, but we have to kind of separate the two, like pull them apart, like what does the world say about this, but what does the gospel say about this? So a couple, I just have two different things I want to point out. Here's the cultural script on sex and sexuality. The cultural script says that sex and sexuality is just self-expression. It's based on the cultural script is, it's a very individualistic individualistic based. You want this? Do it. It feels good? Go ahead. The idea is like, this will kind of give you a new identity. Just give in. Don't ever deny yourself again. But it's this idea of like, this script is just saying, this is a way to to just express yourself, to separate yourself from the pack, you're going to be known by this. This might now be your new and primary identity in which you live by, maybe through your gender or your sexuality. This is your new identity. Your foremost important uh, identity is now your, your sexuality, is now your gender, the way in which you want to express yourself or your gender. And this is a script we live by, just it's self-expression. The Bible says, or the gospel says, I think there's a gospel script that says, no, no, it's not about self-expression. It's designed. Sex and sexuality is designed. I, I want to get to this because this is so beautiful. There's a design to it. There's a purpose to it. You know, God created it, so therefore God gets to say, here's the rules in which it works. Here's how, here's how you live in it. Here, let me just throw the verse out. It's Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says, God created man, mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. I love this, that both male and female are made in the image of God. You know, sometimes you do see like this battle of the sexes. Men should celebrate women. Women should celebrate man. There's something beautiful when you say, wow, we're both made in the image of God. There is not, I am better, you are worse. There is not that, I'm a, I have more value, you have less value. We've seen that, I think, maybe that the scales have tipped in different ways throughout history. And I think we got to realize, no, no, we're both image bearers of God. How beautiful is that? You see from the very beginning, yes, there's different roles. There's differences. In personalities, in biology, there's differences, but yet there's equal value and equal worth and equal weight, and it is so beautiful. He says, I made them male and female in my image. Obviously, God from the very beginning shows us this is my design. There's two genders, there's two sexes, male, female from the very beginning. Again, this is so important because this shows us that this is not just by happenstance. We don't choose what we want. We go, God, wow, this is how you made us. That life will actually be more satisfying when I embrace how you made me. That you made me this way. That that's a beautiful thing. To think that before the foundation of the world, God knew even what your gender would be. 
God knew what your sex would be. That we can actually celebrate the other gender, the other sex, and say, hey, God made you a woman. That is a beautiful thing. You're made in the image of God. Don't let men try to steal from you or take something from you or hurt you or just use you. Kind of view you as a consumer product. What can I get from you? And man, vice versa. God has made you a man. That is beautiful. That is wonderful. Embrace. And there's something so wonderful, I do believe, about the gospel script that this is designed. This is from God. It says in Genesis 2, 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This idea of man, woman becoming one. You know, it's funny. We celebrate diversity. Except today, not really in sexuality, always. There's something beautiful about diversity of saying, hey, male, female, one flesh. There is this idea of completion or wholeness. There's this idea that, yes, you, you, God made you male, God made you female, you become one in marriage. What I'm trying to bring up, obviously, is the Bible could say, there's a spectrum of genders, there's a spectrum of, the Bible could say, now let us now basically deny all of these things or could say, hey, here's my plan, here's what God's design, and that obviously excludes everything else. Meaning, um, if I said two plus two is four, that just means all other options are not four. That means two plus three is not four. Like, I'm excluding everything else by simply claiming that like, here's what it is. But from the very beginning, God goes, here's what it is, male and female becoming one flesh. Actually, Jesus said it this way, because I think the question a lot of times is, what does Jesus say about sex, sexuality, marriage? What does he say about this? What does he say about me? Does Jesus speak anything about transgenderism? Does Jesus say anything about homosexuality? What does Jesus say about this? Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 19. Jesus answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, Jesus is basically saying, I'm going to define marriage, and by defining marriage, I define everything else. It's man and woman joined together in this covenant of marriage, becoming one flesh. Jesus does not try to speak into every single different, maybe, spectrum when it comes to gender. He just says, hey, this is what it looks like. Because people want to know, what does he say about this? What does he say about this? I feel like a question you'll see pop up. is like, what does he say about this topic, this topic? He actually just says, here's what marriage is. Here's what it looks like. So just to put it simply, the design we see from the very beginning is that sexuality is to be expressed with one person in marriage in a covenant of the opposite sex for life. Here's how God describes it. From the very beginning, it's, it's in covenant it's with one person of the opposite sex for life. God's like, this is what it looks like. Now, obviously, this frustrates, it makes a lot of people angry today. And I don't like this. And remember, what I want to suggest to you is maybe if this ethic frustrates you, punt this topic for a while. And the idea is, is Jesus Lord and Savior? And if he is, then come back to this. What I want to get to, and the reason, again, why I bring this up, and I think is we get sometimes so lost and we miss the big picture and we do think that God is trying to steal joy from us, when in reality, he's not. You, again, you got to know that. And I, this is so hard, I think, some, for me growing up. The Bible is like, this was just a, a bunch of rules to steal my joy. When in reality, and I read this, go, oh my gosh, God has given me this so I can have fullness of joy. Like, why do we see so many marriages falling apart today? Why do we see just sexuality creeping into everything, everyone? Like, why do we see this perversion happening? We're seeing so many people be hurt, families broken apart, because obviously we've not embraced God's design for marriage and sexuality. I think that's why we're seeing so much pain. We're seeing so much heartache. We're seeing things heighten because we've, we've actually tried to go the complete opposite way of this. Listen, here's what one author says. He says, when we lose the knowledge of the existence of a creator, we lose the concept of design. When we lose the concept of design, we undermine the discovery of purpose. When we undermine the discovery of purpose, we remove the conviction of accountability. When we, re- we remove the conviction of accountability, we undermine the fear of God. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. When we, we, we lose the sight of just design. We lose the sight of purpose. We lose the sight of accountability in this. We've lost sight of the design. There's a design. And God's done his good. And here's, again, this is the Bible just saying, hey, I want to see you abstain. I want to see you live differently than the world does. So the cultural script is saying, hey, do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. God says, hey, this is a design. The reason why you're seeing so much pain in this is we're not living into that design. But here's another thought. A cultural script says sex and sexuality is God. While the Bible or the gospel says sex and sexuality is a gift. I think we live like that sex, like we live in, again, a world where this is like America's greatest pastime. I mean, maybe you've seen this stat before, but did you know that we spend more money as Americans on pornography than we do in the MLB, NBA, and the NFL combined? We spend more money on that. This is America's truly America's greatest pastime. 
The idea is that we are obsessed with this. This is a God. This is a power play for us, possibly. This is how you feel value and worth. Maybe by maybe just how you view the opposite sex or how you view the same sex, how you view yourself. I think here's what I mean by this being God. I think this is the way in which people see the world is this is the primary the primary lens in which I see the world is through my sexuality. That everything is viewed through how I identify myself when it comes to sex and sexuality. Here's what I'd say. If that's your lens, like this is primarily my identity, I would say, no, that's not primarily your identity. Primarily your identity is you're an image bearer of God. God made you in his image. And I would say substitute your lens that everything you're receiving, all information, all topics come through this lens of gender or sexuality. And I say, change your lens. Like, replace it with the gospel of Jesus in which you, in how you receive and view the world. See, this is what I mean by it's a God. The Bible says this, though. It is a gift. Sex and sexuality is a gift. This is something that I think we should talk about more. Sometimes the church gets a little weird. Like, we gotta understand, God's not embarrassed by sex. God's not embarrassed by the topic of sexuality. He invented it, right? Like, God can handle that. God made this and says, hey, I made you male and female, and this is very good. It's Genesis 1.31. God saw everything he made, and indeed, it was very good. It was very good. He saw that male and female, he goes, this is very good. All right, I want to understand, when it comes to the topic of sexuality or sex, the Bible actually says very positive things around it, meaning it's not just like sex is bad. I think right maybe in like that purity mo- like movement in the 90s, you're like, oh my gosh, sex, we can't talk about that. That's like bad. When in reality, the Bible's like, this is beautiful. Mar- it's Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. The idea is marriage is beautiful. It's honorable. Hey, the bed, undefiled. I, you know, read Song of Solomon, right? The Bible has a positive view and like tone when it comes to the topic of sex. The reason why I think this is so important for us is that we're not saying sex is God and we're not saying sex is gross. We're saying sex is a gift. It's a gift. It's a beautiful gift from God that God made for us to enjoy in the covenant of marriage with one person of the opposite sex for life. It's a gift. It's a beautiful gift God has given us. And I think that we need to change the tone in the heart around this. You see, the world says sex is an entirely normal appetite and it just needs to be fed. I don't know if you've ever heard this like at a university when your professors just kind of talk about sex. It's like, listen, sex is like anything else. You're hungry, you eat. You're thirsty, you drink water. You want sex, you have sex. And it's kind of talked about like an appetite. And I'm like, wait, what? It's kind of interesting when you kind of hear, hear that. It's like, okay, if I don't have food, I don't have water, I die. I, I, and if someone's like, if I don't have sex, I die. I'm like, well, you're just creepy and weird. No, that's not true. You, you will actually live. You're okay. But the idea is like, we, there's talked about like it's just an appetite. It's why C.S. Lewis actually wrote about this. He goes, how strange is this? Sex is not an appetite. How dare we like dumb it down to that? He's like, if it was just an appetite, he's like, we don't do this. He's like, no one goes to like a show, like a gentleman's club and they're like, is the steak here tonight? Like, and like the curtain opens up and there's like an apple. Like, oh, an apple. Like, no, no one does that. He like relates it to that way. You're not gonna go to a college dorm room and just find like chicken fingers on the wall. I'm like, oh, no. His whole point is like, this is not an appetite. <laughs> this is not. It's something more than that. The, the point of this is, is, is not just an appetite. This is sacred. This is beautiful. It's a gift from God. You know, here's what sex and sexuality really is. It's ultimately symbolic and portraying a deeper longing in all of our hearts. Because the idea of sex and sexuality is I can be fully naked and, and vulnerable before you and be loved and accepted and received. And what sex and sexuality is is saying, hey, listen, it doesn't matter. You know everything about me and you love me and you receive me. Sexuality or sex is pointing to a greater story. It's pointing actually to a greater narrative. It might be hard for us to understand it, but the Bible actually relays that quite a bit. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul uses the idea of sex and sexuality to say this is actually a greater point or a greater story. 1 Corinthians 6, we'll throw up here verse 13. Paul says, The body is not for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. See, sex is pointing to a greater reality. It's pointing to the story you and I all long for. See, the, the idea is saying, I want to be fully known and fully loved and fully embraced. It's like, yeah, Th- this desire you have for intimacy, it, it, it shows you a greater desire. You have intimacy for the one who created you and made you. This desire to be loved by someone, you know, I, I've, you hear this idea of, you know, why does, the Bible, why does God care about who I love? You know, I really do appreciate about the Bible and about the, the Greek language. It's, it's very diverse. You can have agape love for anyone and everyone. You can agape love whoever you want. But this erotic love, this eros love in the Greek that's used, is actually used for the covenant of marriage with one person of opposite sex for life. And, and the point being, you, you know, the Bible doesn't say stop loving them. Agape love them. I love them unconditionally. But it doesn't mean you have to introduce. Just because you agape love them does not mean you introduce erotic love to this situation. 
And there's a difference there. But what I'm trying to bring up is this ultimately this craving for love is pointing to a greater love you and I all have. That we're made by him and for him. Bruce Marshall says, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. The person who's going there, what are you you looking for? Sex. I just want a moment of pleasure. No. You're looking for the thing that you think will bring you most satisfaction. That's that's God. That's not not this momentary thing. You're just going to be pursuing it, pursuing it, pursuing it. You know, I think we realize this when you get married, but you cannot have intimacy unless you give up your independence. And I think what we see, and I want to bring up with this idea, this topic is, the more intimacy I want with my, my spouse, the more I have to let go of what I want. And the more you say, okay, like, I, I was talking to some newly married people, and it's like, it's weird. I have to, like, ask for permission to do things. I'm like, I know. Like, it's weird. It's like, can I go to the gym? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just different, right? It's like, you just can't do whatever you want. You're like, I'm going to go here, and you're like, you're going to go over there? You're like, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm just kidding. I'm not really going to. And it, and the idea is, like, you give up your independence. Why? Because you want greater intimacy. You give up your independence for greater intimacy. And this is the, the Christian story. First of all, God gave up his independence, you could say, for greater intimacy. God left heaven, came to earth. It says he, he, he humbled himself, right? Like, set aside the divine attributes so that he could be with us for greater intimacy. So I, I want you to understand that there's a sense where you go, no, no, if I want greater intimacy with God, I have to give up what I want. If I want greater intimacy with God, I have to give up my independence. It's not my way anymore. It's not what I want anymore. I'm called to a life of self-denial. That's the way of Jesus. So it's a life of self-denial. And it's saying, you know what? Because I know that in denying myself, I know that in giving up my life, I find my life. I know that when I give my life, I find out what I was really made for, and I find more joy and contentment and peace in that. Because all those things I thought would bring me peace or contentment, they never did. And I went from one sexual partner to one sexual partner to from one relationship to the next relationship. It never brought me anything. You go, what is that? Because you're not made for that. You're made by God and for God. And if you want greater intimacy with God, you have to give up your independence to find that. You have to give up your way to find that. You see, the cultural script says, hey, sex is everything. It's God. The Bible says, you know, it's a gift. It's beautiful. But it points to a greater story. It points to a greater longing of our heart. You know, here's the last thought I want to just read to you. Um, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is God's will, your sanctification. You know, it's interesting about sanctification. Again, it's like, what does this mean or look like? I've noticed that there's like a process in sanctification. Here's what happens so often. I'll just try to put it simply. Um, In sanctification, there's a depth of sin that's like revealed in our lives. When you're being sanctified, you realize, I messed up. Like, I messed up, Josiah. Like, the more you get closer to God who is light, God exposes the darkness in your life. And so when you're kind of being saved, like I get closer, I'm drawing close to God who's light. You're like, oh my gosh, God who's light is shining on all these years of my life. I'm pretty messed up. You know, it's funny. I heard one time, and it just, oh, killed me. I won't get into it. Um, I heard like one of those TV preachers say um, his main point of the whole sermon was, you're doing better than you think you are. And that was the whole point. You're doing better than you think you are. And my thought was, I'm doing worse than I think I am. Like, no, like, like I'm worse than I think I am, and Christ is better than I think he is. You see, the gospel is not you're doing better than you think you are. The gospel is Jesus is better than you think he is. That's the gospel. You see, as you get closer to God, you realize, I'm a filthy sinner. And then number two, you realize the depth of need we have for God. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm such a filthy sinner. What do I need? I need a God who can save me. You know, I'm not doing better than I think I am. I'm doing worse than I think I am. And Jesus Christ is better than I think he is. And that leads to that third thought of this depth of joy we have in Christ. It's Corey Ten Boone, the, the, the famous lady who, you know, used to hide Jews in her house during the Holocaust. And she said, you know, you don't realize Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. And then you see that, you go, yes, that's all I need is this joy I have in him. That nothing else can satisfy me unlike like him. Nothing. I've tried it. Nothing else can satisfy me like him. And, and here's, this is the point of God, Paul saying, he goes, this is God's will for your life. Your sanctification, your holiness, you being set apart. This is my will for you. And this is not just for someone else. I know it's really easy to walk through texts on, on Christian sex ethics and go, well, this is for that person or that group or that whatever, that community. And you go, no, no, this is for me. Then the thing's off limits. I, I'm very, I'm thankful. It's kind of humbling when you think about, like, when it comes to this topic of sexuality, nothing's off limits. Nothing. It could be your thought life, the desires of your heart. Nothing's off limits. God's like, I've called you to something greater. Here's the third point. Why do we... Uh, want to live in holiness and walk in holiness. Why? Well, Paul says it this way in verse 6 through 8. He says, simply number 3, to escape the wrath of God. So why don't we read verse 6? This is a great way to end, right? Um, Verse 6, Paul says that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this manner because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. 
It's so sad that our brain thinks of the Avengers when I read that. Um, the Lord is an Avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, listen, whoever disregards this doesn't disregard man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. That is incredibly humbling. He's like, if you don't receive this teaching, you're not disregarding me. It's like, oh, just, I, don't, I don't agree with that. He goes, you're disregarding God who gives us his Holy Spirit who actually helps you and transforms you and can get you out of maybe certain proclivities or desires you have. You're not just disregarding man's, it's not man's teaching, but God. Here's the thing. He goes, whoever dishonors his brother or sister in this manner, he goes, don't forget the Lord is an avenger of all such. Remember, it's, it's what Jesus said. It's what, it's what Paul says in the book of Romans, where God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It's like, hey, no, no. The Lord is the avenger of all these things. So here's, here's the point. Sexuality is cautioned. If I could just kind of summarize what he's saying, he goes, I, I want to caution your view of sexuality. I want to give you a warning. You're not disregarding man, but God who's given us a spirit. So there is a, a warning or cautioning in this. Paul actually does this a lot in the epistles. It's 1 Corinthians 6, 9, a verse you might know. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicator, nor idolater, nor adulterer, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Sexuality is warned. A lot of other things are warned. And this is not something I want to pass over lightly. This is something worth reading and meditating on. God, where is this in my heart? Am I, is there idolatry in my heart? There's things from this list I have to constantly repent of. Is there covetousness in my heart, God? Is there idolatry in my heart, God? But obviously Paul points out a couple of sexual sins. He goes, hey, do you not know this? That those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's warned. It's cautions. Don't you know this? You know, these two, there's two different Greek words, and I'm not going to try to pronounce them because I'm not in that headspace right now. Um, but there's two different Greek words for the idea of, of when he says nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. Here's why I want to bring this up. There's a book that I read, and I wanted to read it. It's called God and the Gay Christian. Uh, the author's name is Matthew Vines, and basically this guy shares his story of how he is in a monogamous homosexual relationship, and God honors and blesses monogamous homosexual relationships in the covenant of marriage. And his whole argument, he's trying to make the case for not um, a really, you know, kind of lifestyle that's sleeping around, but if I'm in the covenant of marriage with the same sex, God will bless that and honor that. It's, and again, I, so I'm like, you know, let me read the book. People said, read it. I read it. And I want to just get a feel for it. And listen, it's very thought-provoking. It has some decent points throughout it. It's intriguing. It's very heartfelt. You, you really go, oh, my heart breaks for his story and what he went through in the church. And it kind of pulls on your heartstrings as well. He tries to ad address some theological concepts in it. And one of his main arguments is, is in this verse, he'll say, look at these Greek words, malakoi or arsenikotai, whatever. He goes, look at these words. His whole point is, no, no, this has nothing to do with a monogamous relationship in the covenant of marriage. This has nothing to do with that. Paul, this wasn't even thought of. They never had, um, in the Greek history, they never had this. And I just want to bring this up because a guy named Thomas Hubbard, who wrote um, Homosexuality in Greece and Rome, is kind of an expert around homosexuality in Greece and Rome, and says, no, no, they absolutely had um, a covenantal marriage with the same sex in Greece and in Rome. They absolutely had that. that, that and actually, the words that the Paul uses also includes that. The reason why I just feel like it's necessary to bring it up, because I think we're living in a moment, a day and age, where this will be more and more common. And here's the thing. There will be biblical arguments and framework around it. And my thing, listen, we're not always going to want to go back and forth, but there comes a point in time you say, listen, I do got to be really clear. God speaks into that as well. Again, nothing is off limits. Even the other word that he uses for sexually moral is Pornia. And that literally includes every sexual thing outside of marriage or maybe outside of uh, this, the covenant of marriage or before it or after it. Just everything you can think of. Pornia communicates that idea for us, pornography, but he's saying this, everything is covered here. My point being that once you try to make an argument that this, God would only speak about this but not this, I think obviously we're getting into some territory. They go, no, God is saying, do I have all of you? Do I have all of you? I want all of you. I even want your sexual identity. I want all of you. I love you. I am patient with you. I'll walk through this with you. I think that we, again, we, we sometimes expect God to do something in a day that might take a lifetime through the sanctification of the Spirit. There needs to be patient in the church. There's, we need to be patient with our brothers and sisters who are struggling with this. We can't, we can't just try to like hit them over the head really quick and say, well, don't you know this argument? My thing, though, is I want to bring this up because I think it's healthy for us to have a, a good framework because this will be more and more commonplace as we move forward, but also for us to lovingly walk through things with people and say, hey, listen, nothing's off limits to God. And it's not just targeting one group of people. For those of you who are still sleeping around with your boyfriend or girlfriend, God speaks obviously to this with the idea of pernia. For those of you who live like that tender, the tender life, and you're, I don't know, swiping left or right, whatever way direction you do, if you're living that way, the idea is like God speaks into that as well. Like nothing's off limits. 
It's not like, well, theirs is worse. No. We know that sexual sin is sexual sin, and every sexual sin needs to be repented of. And say, God, I bring my sexuality, and I bring my sexual sin to you, and I bring it to your lordship, and do what you want. Jesus, your way, not my way. I bring it to you. I'm not going to do my way anymore. My, my thing with this is sexuality is caution. It's caution. He goes, Paul's like, don't you know that those who practice these things will not receive the kingdom of God? But you know what he says next, which I know that you know this? He goes, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were cleaned by the blood of Jesus. That's not your story anymore. If you feel like this is who I am or this is who I was and I can never let go of that identity, Paul goes, no, no, such were some of you. That is no longer your identity. The way you wanted to express yourself sexually, the way you wanted to be known, such were some of you. That's not your identity. You are washed. You are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That is not your identity. Your identity, you're hidden. Your life is hidden in Christ, in God. That's your identity. And so here's the thing today, because this is not one of those things. I don't think anyone graduates from this, by the way. I don't think, well, I got it. I'm good. I think once you think that, I guess just be ready. He who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall, Luke 14, 11, right? Once you think you stand, it's like, oh, be ready. And my thing is, watch what the enemy attacks your thought life, your heart, your desires. And so you think, Josiah, what do I do? How do I get out of this? Like, what does this look like? I just want to share a couple quick thoughts, if I can, with you guys. A couple quick practices. Here's the first thing that I can't really do that no one can really do. I'll say this. Here's the first point that I can't do. Uh, number one, get a new heart. Get a new heart. Because here's the thing, the heart of every problem is a problem of the heart. I really do believe that. And someone's like, well, I just can't stop. I'm like, I agree, you can't, you can't stop. Get a new heart. How do I do that? Let God give you one. Huh? Here, here's the idea. It's Mark chapter 7, but listen to this. Mark 7, it says, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. I laugh so hard because I, I love talking to Christians where it's like, listen, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but God knows my heart. I'm like, yes, you're right. God does know your heart, and your heart is deceitfully wicked above all. Like, yes, absolutely, you're not wrong. God knows your heart, your wicked, wicked heart. Yes, he does. He knows it. Out of the heart come these things. So what do we do? Get a new heart. Is that even biblical? Yeah, Ezekiel, listen to this, 36, I love this. Ezekiel 36, 26, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Paul said in Ephesians 3, 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. God will give you a new heart. I think first and foremost, he said, God, give me a new heart. Cut out my heart of stone. My heart that just says, I want nothing to do with God. I want nothing to do with Christians. I hate this teaching. I hate this idea. Just say, God, give me a new heart. You can't change yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't do it. God, give me a new heart. I, I, you're like, how? Ask. Uh, you have not because you ask not. <laughs> you're like, how does this work? I don't know. Ask. I just, that's how God did it for me. That's how God does it. It's funny. People are like, how do I do this? I'm like, you don't. You just ask. I don't know. Like, it's just so many, I love Christian. I love this about the gospel. As many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. Receive it. God's like, I'll give you a new heart. I receive that. Okay. Receive it. You go, God, I, I believe this. I receive this. I live into this. I, I, I believe, Jesus, that you will give me a new heart by your spirit. Number two is this, not just a new heart, but you need new practices. New practices. A new way of living. A new way of doing life. Let me just put it simply. Be in the word. If you're like, I can't, like, my sin right now when it comes to sexual sin, we're too far in. I mean, we've gone, we've done it too much. My thoughts, my desires, we're going to go, just I don't care what you're saying, we're going to go home right now after this and do whatever we want. Like, no, I would say this, be in the word. Be in the word. Obviously, Psalm 119, verse 9 through 11, says this simple idea. But it says, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed to your word. Really, the, the, simple, the simple answer to this is being God's word. Replace your way of thinking and your thoughts with God's word. How do you cleanse your way? Take heed to God's word. And not just be in God's word, but obviously I'll say this. Be in community that thinks that way. Like, be in community that believes this way. Actually, 2 Timothy 2.22 says, um, flee youthful lusts. That's, okay, this topic. But pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. With who? With those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Be in the word. Do it with other people. Don't be alone in this. Tell people, hey, I'm really struggling with these sexual thoughts. Actually, I'm, I'm doing these things. I'm practicing these things. I want to invite you into this. Flee youthful us. How? Do it with those, with other people who call on the Lord. That's why we talk so much about community. Because we're like, do it with other people. Don't do it alone. Be in God's word. Do it with other people. And adopt these new practices. We all have to. There's no real secret bullet. Listen, I know all of us want to be zapped sometime by like God. Like, God, I have this like, sin in my life. Can you just like zap it out? 
Like, please be so great. Like, zap, you're done. Like, oh my gosh, thank you, God. It's so great. Like, here's the thing. God can do that. God can remove desires moments. He can. But a lot of times, he just does it by a work of the Spirit called sanctification, and he does that through his word and through prayer and through something called community. Just he does it through some of the basic things. Being his word, being community. Here's the third thing. Um, cut sexual sin out of your life. Maybe you need to be pretty extreme about it. Maybe you're like, hey, this is really heavy in my life. Maybe you just need to completely cut it out of your life. The idea could be simply you, you put something on your phone, you, you delete some app, but you know what? It still doesn't solve the problem of the heart. We know that. That's why I said, you know, first and foremost, we need a new heart. But maybe you just need to be extreme about this. I mean, Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is profitable for you to, uh, that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you than one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Jesus is saying, hey, listen, when it comes to sin, uh, be pretty dramatic and, and serious about it. Cut it out of your life. Now, obviously, you can, be, you can pluck out every eyeball, cut off every hand. You can do all those things. You're still going to have a wicked heart. Like, you're still going to desire those things, right? You could be on a desert island with no temptation around you and still have temptation in your heart. Ultimately, you need a new heart. But Jesus basically said, hey, take it serious. Maybe there's certain things you need to cut out of your life. As Paul would say, crucify your flesh with its passions and desires. Maybe you need to just remember daily, God, I want to crucify my flesh. I want to die to myself, be alive to you, Romans 6. Romans 6 is one of those chapters I go back to time and time again where I say, God, I don't want to present my body to sin anymore, but I want to present my body to you. I want to be a living sacrifice to you, God. That's what Romans 6 says. Here's the last thing. You might need to pray and fast. And I mean, pray and fast. You might need to be pretty dramatic. If you're in a place in life where you're like, Josiah's sexual, like, my hand, why are you talking about so much? Stop talking about it. And you're like, really annoyed at me right now? Pray and fast. Maybe you sense the Holy Spirit speaking to you right now and saying, I have a better plan for your life than what you're, you're giving in. You're settling. You're going against God's will for sanctification and holiness. Listen, pray and fast. Maybe you need to have a season of just fasting why fasting? Fasting obviously teaches us how to kind of control our flesh. When you're fasting, and if you fast recently, you know what it's like. Your stomach is really mad at you, and your stomach's like, feed me. And you're like, I know, I really want to feed you, but no. And your stomach is yelling, feed me. And you're basically saying, stomach, you don't control me. I control you. See, fasting is showing your flesh who's boss. Fasting is saying, when, you're, when your body goes, give in, click, watch that. You're saying, no, no, no. You don't control me, I control you. When your flesh is saying, feed me, you're going, no, no, I'm not going to feed you. I'm going to not feed you so you can die. <laughs> and that is the idea. Fast and pray. Actually, Isaiah 58, uh, this is what he says. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? What is the fast? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. This fast included for the people of Israel at that time to be freed from wickedness. Maybe you need to say, God, free me from this. I need to fast over this. He says, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives us his Holy Spirit to you. Listen, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. I want to say, again, if you find yourself like, Josiah, this is so heavy. I don't, I don't want to give this up. Join the club. The, the whole Christian life is basically saying, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus. You might not want to, but you know once you do, once you give up your life, you will find it. You know that once you give it up, you'll go, oh my gosh, I discovered what I'm made for, who I'm made for, what brings me true satisfaction and fulfillment. I thought this sexual expression or this sexual experience would bring me fulfillment, but only Christ can do that. It was pointing to a greater longing that I had. And here's what I love. If this has been your background, can I tell you, you know this, such worse than you, meaning this does, not have to, this does not have to be your identity anymore, that God has forgiven you and redeemed you and bought you at a price. And I love what Paul says in, in the book of Acts, or what it says in Acts 10, 15, it says, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. Now, this could be in reference, yes, to the meats and things like that. But I want to say this, if God has called you washed and clean, do not call it unclean. Do not say, you know what, but this is still who I am. No, no. If you are clean by the blood of Jesus, then you are clean. If God calls you clean, then you're clean but you've been washed, sanctified, set apart. You no longer say, but I am this. No, I am in Christ. I am a new creation. Uh, my life is hidden with Christ in God. My identity is not through my sexuality or my gender. My identity is in Jesus. This is the primary lens in which I view the world. My identity is in Jesus.
Listen, there is grace at the cross. This is not that one person needs to repent. All of us here have repentance. I, I really do believe when it comes to holiness and sanctification, I don't think anyone here is like, yeah, I passed that. <laughs> like, I don't think anyone here is there. I think all of us have some repenting to do, some owning to do. Say, Jesus, wash me, cleanse me, such for some of you. I boast in the finished work of the cross. I boast in your blood. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. I receive this. You've given me your spirit to overcome this. I don't disregard this. Yes, Jesus, I receive what you have for me today. Can we just spend some time in prayer, repenting, confessing, thanking God for the finished work of the cross, thanking God that such were some of you, such were some of us. Thank you, God, that this no longer defines me. What man has called common or unclean, God, you call clean. Because why? It is finished because of what you did for us on the cross of Calvary. Amen? Let's pray, let's worship, let's confess, let's talk to the Lord. Uh, I pray that this would not just be in word only, but in deed and in truth, and that we'd be able to now live into it, live it out. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you care so much about us, that you are willing and you're ready to say those things that we need to hear, to call us out of what we think is best to what you designed us for, God, I just ask that you'd be present in this room, that if um, Jesus, maybe those are just holding on to certain sexual sins or identities or experiences, God, that there could be a sense of surrender. There could be a sense of not my will, but your will be done. God, I just ask that um, you'd humbly work in this place. We just want to thank you, Jesus, for your love. Thank you for your blood. Thank you, God, just for what you've done. Lord, I just ask that, again, in my life, in our life, that holiness would not just be theory, but God, it would be practice. That we would just accept your holiness for us, but also live into that. So Jesus, we just want to praise you now. We ask that you would heal, that you'd redeem, that you'd restore, that you right now would make all things new. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Why don't we stand and let's just close with some worship.